Father, we come into your presence today. We've come from so many different backgrounds, come with different agendas, different challenges, a lot of things in front of us. And we want to lay aside all those things so that we just stand in and sit in your presence. Father, give us a new understanding of what it's like to be in your presence. And as, as your presence fills this place, fills the atmosphere, fills our hearts and our awareness that, that you would transform us, change our lives. Because we cannot come into contact with the living God and remain the same. We must change because you are transformative. You change us. And I pray, Lord, this morning, no matter where every person is, I pray that you would help us to make an altar in our hearts before you and say, I want to be in your presence. I want to be transformed by you. And Holy Spirit, you are welcome. You are here. And we know that you are changing our lives. And I pray, Lord Jesus, you will continue as we move forward today. Father, as we look at your word, you are present in your word, the living word of God. And I pray today that we would leave changed because we've been here in your presence and heard from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. If we just begin to understand a little bit of what it's like to be in the presence of God. And we can do that. You can do that out in the fields. You can do it out in the woods. You can do it in many settings out in nature. And you can do it in your home. You can do it in this setting. There's something powerful about coming together and spending time together in the presence of God. So I trust that you've sensed that today. On July 4th of every year, we in America celebrate a very special historical event, the birth of our country. And we celebrate the 4th of July in many different ways, family get-togethers, picnics, barbecues. But if we were to name one part of the celebration most often associated with the 4th of July, we would say what? Fireworks, fireworks, exactly. We experience the 4th of July with fireworks, and many times with different types of fireworks. Some like their fireworks to be safe and sane. Safe fireworks, twizzlers and sparklers and whistlers and screamers, nothing too loud or too powerful. Safe enough to set out in your neighborhood cul-de-sac or on your neighborhood street. Now, the more adventuresome of you will probably throw in a bottle rocket or two. Others who want a robust expression of Independence Day will even drive great distances to buy their real fireworks. Rockets, M80s, cherry bombs, or the like, which I'm not sure if they're legal anymore, but we like to have the explosive kind of celebration. 
Well, whether you like safe and sane, small town fireworks, big booms, or huge fireworks show for the 4th of July, we all have preferences for degrees of danger and excitement. And in some ways, our approach to our faith, our Christian life, can be compared to our approach to fireworks. Christianity is a powerful, explosive, life-changing force. But some like to try to keep it safe and sane, controlled, easygoing. While some, the more adventurous among us, love the fanatical, explosive, even dangerous side of Christianity, today we're going to talk about dangerous Christianity, what it means. I grew up in a church that, like most evangelical churches of the day, loved and valued the Bible as the Word of God. We had all had a desire to make a difference in our communities. We, we were good people in good churches, well-respected, and we were just nice. We were nice. There were some general characteristics of the faith in these evangelical churches of this day. And as I look back, three characteristics stand out to me. Three characteristics. The first one was, we were sincere, but safe. We are sincere, but safe. We believed sincerely, but did not want to do anything outside the norm. We wanted to be safe, first of all, by knowing for sure that we were going to go to heaven if we died. We didn't want to do anything that could jeopardize our going to heaven. So we created boundaries, rules, defining very clearly who was in and who was out. We wanted to be safe. At the beginning, this was defined as holiness, but it degenerated into something called legalism, and if we'd be honest, pride. Safe. Secondly, our faith could be described as committed but not fanatical. Committed but not fanatical. We were committed in our own quiet way, but we would never want to be perceived as fanatics. We were respected Christians in our communities and did nothing to jeopardize that. We were not fanatics, and we were definitely not emotional. Okay? No one wanted to get too excited about God. It was our way of staying in control, which fit my heritage because I was Norwegian. It was good. Thirdly, my faith was what I would describe as faithful but not bold. Faithful but not bold. We would stand up for our faith if attacked, but we would never aggressively propagate our beliefs to someone else. Only missionaries did that. It was a faith that was more passive than assertive. Private, not public. Does that sound familiar to anybody? A faith, sincere but safe, committed but not fanatical, faithful but not bold. And I can't put my finger on exactly when, but I began to grow dissatisfied with the sanitized safe belief system. I read in the Bible about men and women who were fanatics for the faith. It seemed like the fanatics were those that really shook things up. They made a difference. They caused positive change. I began to hunger for a more robust and active faith experience, for more of God, more of his power, his presence in his person. I longed to see in my lifetime what happened in the book of Acts. I no longer wanted safe Christianity. I wanted dangerous Christianity. 
dangerous in the sense that I could not control the course of events. Someone greater, God was behind it all, animating it all. And as I studied and I searched and I prayed seeking God, something happened to me. I can't describe it and I can't prescribe it. It's different for each and every one of us. God works in each of us in unique and special ways. I prayed that God would empty me of self and fill me with his Holy Spirit, that he would give me, give me power so that I could become dangerous, a threat to complacency, threat to the ordinary, a threat to the darkness and evil around me. God met me, and he did something extraordinary. You can call it whatever you wish. It doesn't matter. All I know is that I was changed. God took this safe, sane, ordinary, committed Christian and turned my life upside down. And I've never been the same since. Jesus had a group of followers, about 120 total, who fit this same narrative. They were sincere, but safe. They were committed, but not fanatical. They were faithful, but fearful. They were not bold. And last Sunday, we read that he left them on top of a mountain in Galilee and told them to wait. They're to wait for the Holy Spirit. And I want us to join him today as we look at Acts 2, Acts 2, 1 through 21. So we look at dangerous Christianity. Acts 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound of a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came and rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I have to say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. The help. He said, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
dangerous Christianity right there. We, we have seen some incredible displays of power in our day. Exploding volcanoes, devastating tsunamis, horrific hurricanes, spectacular wildfires, even exploding nuclear bombs. We've seen all these powers. But there's nothing in history that compares to the power of this event. An explosion of the power of God as he breaks into the lives of men and women, shaking the world to the very core. What the disciples of Jesus had experienced under the ministry and teaching of Jesus was about to explode into a fire that would literally envelop the entire known world. This instantly became dangerous Christianity. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twelve, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. This was not safe and sane Christianity. This was dangerous Christianity. We have for too long in America been a church concerned about safe and sane. The question is, where are the difference makers? Where, where are the makers of history? Looking at the text today, we find it was the day of Pentecost, the Jewish celebration that was held the 50th day after Passover. Jews within 20 miles of Jerusalem were required to attend this festival. And hundreds of people, as we read, hundreds of people from far and wide were also there in Jerusalem. Jesus had told his disciples in Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Power to live your faith, power to be my witnesses, power to have something more than dull religion. Power to make a difference, power to move from safe Christianity to dangerous Christianity. The followers of Jesus now, they were not always ready for the release of his power. There was, there was a preparation time, some things that needed to happen before he was ready to pour out this life-transforming power. What were these preparations for power? The first dimension of preparation was something called unity. Unity. All together in one, one place denotes a unity in heart and purpose. Why does the church in America seem so powerless today? Why is it so powerless today? There's no unity. We stand divided. We have differences in doctrine and worship styles, priorities, vision, and mission. Competing pastors and churches, comparing, competing, coveting. There's, there's no unity. We wonder, why are we not experiencing the power of the Holy Spirit of God? Even within churches, no unity. Where's the unity? Where's the unity? We spend our Saturdays and Sundays in the fall watching Football. Football. Now, what, what do we see in football? I, I feel really bad. Last night, we thought the Packers were going to move on, but you know what? God must have another plan. It was an incredible game. But regardless of that, what do we see when we watch football? We see unity. We see 11 guys all working together to get a pigskin ball over a line more times than their opponent. And 11 guys are there trying to stop them. That's football in simple terms. What do we see? We see unity. What if one guy, just one, decides to do his own thing? The lineman makes up his own blocking assignment. The wide receiver runs his own route. The running back runs where he wants to run or in the wrong direction. 
The cornerback decides he wants his own cover assignment. Just, just one guy. All it takes is one guy out of 11 doing his own thing. And what happens? You lose. You lose the game. How important is unity? All on the same page, same direction, under the direction of the coach, play caller, one purpose in mind. And in the church, and every, this is the ch church universal, but it's also every church local, including this one. There's, there's a oneness of purpose. There's a valuation of every person and their unique contribution and assignment. That's part of unity, valuing what every person brings to the table. In Romans 12, 3 through 6, it says, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. It says, have an accurate picture of who you are and what you've been given. Just as each of us has one body and many members, these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all others. We all have different gifts according to the grace given us. What is he saying? He says we're all different, we're all unique, we're all important, we're all part of the same body, all working together. No personal agendas, no selfish motives, all support. Unity, God has called us to unity. God can do anything, but he cannot or will not work through a fragmented, divided church. Unity calls us to unity. The second aspect of preparation for power is something called expectancy. Expectancy. In Acts 1, 4 through 5, it says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. Expectancy. Which you heard me speak about. Expectancy. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, expectancy, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit. What do you expect from God? What do you expect from God? The ordinary? The usual, the expected, the, the safe and the sane. Or the dangerous, unexpected, powerful, unpredictable, life-changing actions. Expectancy is the essence of faith, looking to God. Then the third aspect of power preparation is emptiness. Emptiness. What do I mean by emptiness? Our lives are incredibly full. Full of ourselves, our own attention, our concerns, our agendas, priorities. And it's natural. Who's the first person you think of when you get up in the morning and look in the mirror? Well, I'm looking at him. You know, it's like, okay, it's all about me. You know, oh, what did I do? What, you know, what happened overnight? Or we're filled with other people, their concerns and agendas. We need to be filled with God. We're, we're, we're filled with everything else. And he says, you're so full. Your lives are so full. Empty Yourself. Ask God to empty yourself and fill you with God. Now, these 120 people that are in the upper room waiting for something to happen, they had all experienced something that emptied them of self. They had experienced something called failure. Failure. Peter denied Jesus. The rest of the, of the disciples ran to save their lives while Jesus was being executed. All of them deserted Jesus, ex except for a few courageous women. Praise God for courageous women. That's a, another sermon at another time. But emptiness was what was needed, so there was space for God to pour himself into. Sometimes we're so self-sufficient 
We don't need God. Sometimes we're so skilled at doing church. We can pull it off whether God shows up or not. We say, we're waiting for his presence. We want his presence. Yeah. Did he show up? Was he here? We cannot live our Christian life in our own strength. And when we come face to face with that fact, we are ready, ready for God to move us from safe and sane to dangerous. So, so what happened then? What, what can we expect? We see power released. Power released. Verses 2 and 4. 2 through 4. It says, Suddenly a sound of a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. What did we see? There were some visible manifestations, things that happened. They could see or feel it. There was a sound of a violent wind first. The wind represented the Spirit of God for the Hebrew people. In the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, God speaks about four winds that were to come on a valley of dry bones. And I put this up on there because I think that we could look at America, we can look at our city, we can look at our state, we can look at our lives individually, our church, whatever, as dry bones. Okay? And it says, The hand of the Lord is upon me, and he, as he, and he brought me out of the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? dead, dry bones. I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will become, come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The Lord. We find Bones, skeletal remains. And these bones symbolize the, the defeated and dejected people of Israel. Lifeless, dead, and powerless. And it could just as well represent a, a family or a congregation or a nation or a state. It could represent you and me. And God said, I will blow my wind on them and they will come to life. The bones didn't have it in themselves to come to life. It had to come from the spirit of the living God. God said, I will blow, and it will work. Jesus talked about wind in John 3. He said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, where it's going. So it is with everyone, born of the Spirit. In Acts, we find this wind was so powerful and violent. There was a, a sound. This was not a tropical breeze. This was a dangerous wind. Nobody's going to notice a safe, gentle breeze. I mean, God speaks to us in gentle winds and breezes, but this was not that. This was an incredible difference-making wind that filled the house. And the wind was so noticeable that a crowd came running to find out what was going on. What's going on? This was an incredibly visible, powerful wind. It's the Holy Spirit rushing into our lives, our empty, expectant life, blowing out the old, stale cobwebs, bringing new Blowing away the fears and uncertainty, replacing it with love, power, and a sound mind. Wind. That was the first visible. The second physical manifestation were tongues of fire. Tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit is portrayed 
as visible fire. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit is portrayed as fire of cleansing, fire of judgment. Fire was a symbol or indicator of God's presence. God appeared to Moses as fire in the burning bush. God was the pillar of fire going before the Israelites in the wilderness. And John had predicted, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And what's interesting, it says these tongues of fire separated and came to rest on each of them. Each of them. Demonstrates that the Holy Spirit comes to indwell individuals. Now, it came to fill the group, but it settled on each individual, which demonstrates that the Holy Spirit is to be for each and every one of us. Every one of us. God has a unique plan and a purpose. Then the third physical manifestation, this is where people freak out sometimes, that's okay, is verbal tongues. Verbal tongues. We don't know if this type of event has ever been repeated in the exact same sequence. I, anecdotally, we've heard of other situations. God can and certainly do whatever he wants. God does whatever he wants. I learned that a while ago. Okay? The tongues spoken were language in languages the speakers never learned. They never learned it, and they, it was understood by at least 16 different people groups. Obviously, this was God's supernatural work. Now, just, just and we'll get, we'll get into this later, but this incident of tongues is different than the gift of tongues that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, okay? God can do tongues in whatever he wants to. It's supernatural. It's born of the Spirit. This incident is different. The gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians is a heavenly language that no one understood. It was speaking to God, not man, a type of prayer language used privately that edified oneself. And it could be used publicly. If it was used publicly, it needed and was to be interpreted to edify the whole church. Okay? That's a different type of tongue. And we, we'll, we'll catch that at a different date. This was a tongue, tongues that came through people. They'd never learned that language, and it was understood by people. 16 different languages. Didn't need an interpretation. It was understood. And it was declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And it says they were amazed and perplexed. You can imagine. This, this is his history. This has never happened before. This wind, this stuff. Tongues of fire, all this stuff going on. And got all these Galileans who don't know languages speaking my language. Obviously a supernatural event. Visible physical manifestations, wind, fire, and tongues. In addition to the physical manifestations, we had invisible manifestations. First one was passion. There was an obvious change in these followers of Jesus. Their actions had passion that captured the attention of all those around them. They were convinced, they were passionate, believable. They didn't care what anybody thought, they just spoke. There was boldness that moved them into new territory, outside the box. They did things they would not ordinarily do, outside their existing character. Has God ever asked you to do something bold, outside your normal character, outside your comfort zone? 
Everybody gets uncomfortable when we talk about that. God asks you to do something outside the box. Several years ago, Judy and I received a phone call from a friend. I've, I've shared this story one other time. We had, a, we had a friend who was flying through Seattle on his way to Alaska. He had a long layover. So he wanted to meet for dinner. So we agreed to meet for dinner down by the airport. And the three of us were seated in a booth enjoying dinner, uh, just a regular nice fellowship dinner with a fellow Christian. And about 25 feet from me was a very well-dressed, distinguished-looking gentleman in a three-piece suit eating alone. And God spoke to me. Now, not audibly. God spoke to me, but clearly told me, said, go talk to that man. Go talk to that man. Well, my sense of propriety said, you do not go up to a perfect stranger in a nice restaurant and ask if I can sit down and have a chat. So I did what I usually do when God asked me to do something outside the box. I said no. <laughs> I learned that from Jonah. See how that worked out with him. Well, God went, listen, I said no. He kept working on me. I made excuses. I don't do things like that. I'm Norwegian. I don't just do those kinds of things. I can preach the word and talk to Jesus about hundreds of people in a setting, but don't ask me to talk to a stranger of one in a restaurant. God was telling me to do something totally outside of my comfort zone. This was not safe. It was not sane. It was dangerous. I remember how I just kind of shifted in my seat and I started to get restless and agitated and Judy started looking at me like, what is wrong? Do you go to the restroom? What's, what's going on here? <laughs> Finally, after fighting and arguing with God for at least 10 minutes, this went on, I obeyed. I said, okay. So I stood up, walked over to his table and asked if I could talk with him. He had this surprised look on his face and I... I probably expected a sales pitch of some sort, but cordially invited me to be seated, so I did. He looked at me expectantly, and in my heart I asked God, okay, now what? <laughs> what do I do? God gave me the words. We had a short, meaningful, and engaging conversation. I shared my faith in Jesus and asked him what he was concerned about, and I said, what concerns you? God is concerned about. God cares about that in every part of your life. I don't remember all that I said to him, but I'll never forget his words to me when I got up to go back to my table. He said, I have a friend who believes what you do. Said she is going to be very interested in this conversation. I've never seen the man since. I have no idea why God had me talk to him. All I know is that I did not have the courage or boldness to do that. It wasn't in me. The Holy Spirit prompted me and gave me the boldness to do something outside the box. I can't take credit for it. I can't do it. I have to say is the Holy Spirit gave that to me. When God tells us to do something outside the box, we need his Power. Save can become dangerous, difference-making by the power of the Holy Spirit. The question is, what is God 
asking you to do that can only be done in the power of the Holy Spirit. But what is he speaking to you about doing that can only be done if you have the power of the Holy Spirit? What's the difference between Peter the coward who denied Jesus and Peter the bold, the Holy Spirit? What was the difference between Thomas the doubter and Thomas full of faith, the Holy Spirit? What was the difference between Paul the persecutor and Paul the preacher, the Holy Spirit? The marker of being filled with the Holy Spirit is boldness, and we move from safe and sane to dangerous by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not by theological education, the church we belong to, our family heritage, our own gifts and abilities. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Visible by the invisible. Physical by the spiritual. External by the internal. Safe to dangerous. Dangerous. Christianity. Just to note, I'm talking about dangerous Christianity in the spiritual sense, not in the like political activism or some other kind of thing. Talking about spiritual senses. The third invisible manifestation is power. Power. Verse 4 says, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? Verse 12, the crowd asked, what does this mean? Peter's answer is a quote from the Old Testament, Joel 2. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Sons, daughters, young men, old men, servants, men, women, includes everybody. As I taught last week, before the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was only given to chosen few for specific purposes. Now the Holy Spirit is for everybody. It's for you. He's for you. Baptizing the Holy Spirit is to be totally immersed, to be filled. It means being soaked with God. Soaked with God. A fullness of the Holy Spirit. In several weeks, we'll be looking more closely at the six passages in Acts that describe being filled with the Holy Spirit and what it means. But question is, where are you today? The Holy Spirit takes up residence when we receive Jesus Christ, turn our life over to him. We are born again, but we must continually be filled more and more. Why? Well, we leak, I guess. That's the case. Before we talk about the results of this, look at the reactions. There are always reactions to God's work. When God acts, people react. And the first reaction was, we find marveling. People who had bewilderment, they were confused, mixed with excitement, perplexed, and astonishment. What does this mean? They said, wow, look at look what God's doing. What does this mean? These were seekers and inquirers. The second reaction was mocking. They made fun of them. They're drunk. They're high on something. They must be out of their minds. When God moves and acts in dramatic fashion, there are always two Reactions, marveling and mocking. Always be there. One of the most incredible incidents that I find of God's power released in different reactions was when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If you, if you want to look at that, it's in, it's in John 12. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd been dead five, like four days, five days, whatever. Raised from the dead. 
And it says, many believed. That was an incredible response. Many believed. The other one said, we've got to kill Jesus and Lazarus too, because Jesus is now raising the dead. People, everybody's following him. So, I mean, we're going, what? He just raised the guy from the dead. And you're saying, you know, talk about reactions. We see it no matter when you see the hand of God, you're going to get at least two reactions. So what's the power's purpose? Power's purpose. Said everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The purpose is that people come to faith in Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God launches an offensive to reclaim the ground lost through the fall. This was the beginning of the birth of the church that you and I are part of. This is our this isn't some ancient this is our history. It's our history. It's our heritage. It's what God intended us to be. To reclaim the lost. What were the results of it? There was relevant proclamation. We don't have time to go into all of this. Proclamation. We must engage our culture where they're at. Power showed real evidence. It restored relationship with God, brought brought new life to everybody who called. And in an amazing way, it gave a renewed mission, renewed sense of mission. Power is not just to be enjoyed ourselves. It's not just about us. It's about people that need to hear about Jesus. That's our mission. Power is given for a mission. The Holy Spirit's power does produce movement. Now, five guidelines, real quickly, for dangerous Christianity. A lot of misconceptions regarding some of these events. Five guidelines for dangerous Christianity. First of all, letter A, seek God, not an experience. Seek God, not an experience. Some people say, I want that experience. No. Seek God. Seek God. Letter B, seek the giver, not the gift. Seek God, not the gift. Letter C, be open. I, people say to me, you know, I, I want everything God has for me, but I don't want that. That's, that's too weird. Okay? That's crazy. That's, people think I'm strange. Okay? It's like we want to say, God, I, I want to be in control still. Do everything you want me to do, but don't, not that. Um, Be open. Letter D, be honest. Am I ready? Am I not ready? You know, these are all questions we have to ask. Am Am I ready? And then be balanced. Be balanced. Our faith rests on the word of God, not experience. Experience is part of our walk with God. It's valid. And some people, all they have is intellectual faith. They've never experienced relationship with God. It's both ends. It's not just the word. It's experience. All of that. The message of God's word is, is not to condemn us. It's, it's not where we fall short. But it's a message of hope and potential. To move us from safe to dangerous. What is God asking of you today. 
What is God asking you today? If you're here today and you're tired of safe Christianity, you desire passion, boldness, and power. God is just waiting for you to ask. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit and move you to dangerous Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we 